Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Good evening. I'm Caitlin Collins on what has been one of the most dramatic days in the long-running legal saga of Donald Trump. And I don't say that lightly tonight. He and we learned today that the former president of the United States will face his first criminal trial on March 25th. All in one courtroom will be defendant Donald Trump, adult film star Stormy Daniels, and hush money payer Michael Cohen. We are about to bear witness to history, yes, once again. But the drama does not end there. It was almost surreal to watch for hours on live TV today another Trump criminal case. The top prosecutor in Fulton County, Georgia, Fonnie Willis, took the stand in her own defense as Trump and some of his 14 remaining co-defendants are trying to have her thrown off the case. Let me get you up to speed. There's a lot to pay attention to here. The lawyers are trying to establish that Willis hired the lead prosecutor on this case, Nathan Wade, when they were already in a romantic relationship. And they allege that she benefited financially from that relationship. Wade also took the stand today, and things got really, really personal. Questions about their romantic relationship, when it began, when it ended, trips that they've taken together, their money, where it went, where it came from. After Wade got off the stand, it still wasn't clear what Willis was going to do. But right as one of her deputies was objecting to her being forced to testify, she made this dramatic entrance and had this to say. I've been very anxious to have this conversation with them today. So I ran to the courtroom. I probably had some choice words about some of the things that you said that were dishonest within this motion. So I don't know that it was a conversation. As you know, Mr. Wade is a Southern gentleman. Me, not so much. You could almost feel the tension as she answered those questions from Ashley Merchant. That's the defense attorney that you see here. She's representing Trump's co-defendant, Michael Roman. She's also the attorney who brought these conflict of interest allegations to light. And throughout the questioning, things got heated. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. You lied in this. this let me tell you which one you lied in right here. I think you lied right here. No, 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 no. no. This is the truth. Judge, and this it, is, it, it is a lie. It is a lie. It was an intense back and forth, specifically on the timeline of when this romantic relationship between Fonnie Willis and Wade began. Here's what they both said on that question. I don't know the day that we started 
seeing each other, but it was early 22 is my recollection. When did your romantic relationship with Miss Willis begin? 2022. Okay, but Robin Yurti, a former friend of Fonnie Willis's and colleagues, contradicted that, saying that Willis and Wade's romance actually began in 2019, before she hired him to work on this case. You have no doubt that their romantic relationship was in effect from 2019 until the last time you spoke with her. No doubt. And then there's the key issue here about money. Willis was peppered repeatedly with questions about how she reimbursed the prosecutor, Wade, for the many trips that they took together. They both testified she paid in cash. So the cash that you would pay him, you wouldn't get it out of the bank? I had money in my house. When we were growing up, my daddy had three safes in the house. So my father's bought me a lockbox, and I always keep cash in the house. Wade testified he didn't have any deposit slips to support those claims that she paid him in cash. She was intensely questioned about the subject as well. At one point, the judge even got involved, interjecting to try to determine what it was exactly the lawyer was trying to suggest. Are you trying to establish that she was insolvent in some way? Um, I definitely was trying to establish that, that she did not have these mass amounts of cash. Then came this extraordinary moment when Willis seemed to suggest her lead prosecutor and now former romantic partner was sexist, while also noting that because of this whole ordeal and what has happened with these allegations, that their relationship has actually grown stronger. It's interesting that we're here about this money. Mr. Wade is used to women that, uh, as he told me one time, the only thing a woman can do for him is make him a sandwich. We would have brutal arguments about the fact that I am your equal. I don't need anything from a man. A man is not a plan. A man is a companion. And so there was tension always in our relationship, which is why I was give him his money back. I don't need anybody to foot my bills. The only man who's ever foot my bills completely is my daddy. We are good friends. Uh, my respect for him has grown over these seven weeks of attacks. Uh, we are very good friends. I think but for these attacks, it would have been a friendship that as life goes, you would have stopped having. Um, I think that you have cemented that we'll be friends to the day we die. And that was just today. She's expected to be back on the stand tomorrow morning. To break down what we did see today in an extraordinary moment, former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig, as well as former U.S. attorney Michael Moore, both CNN legal analysts, also here with us tonight is Atlanta, from Atlanta is the former Georgia prosecutor, Sarah Flack, who previously worked with Fonnie Willis. We'll get to you in a moment, Sarah, because I know you have a lot of thoughts. You were in that room today. But Ellie, when we start with this and you just look at what happened today, I think the question is, did the defendants get what they wanted here in the sense of demonstra demonstrating this conflict of interest that they say exists? Or did Fonnie Willis help herself? I don't think the defendants got what they were hoping for today. I think their proof came up a little bit short. There's still more to come tomorrow. But ultimately, I was not super compelled by either the timing angle or by the financial angle. Fonnie Willis, to me, was such an interesting witness because by the book, she was a dreadful witness. She was evasive. She was non-responsive. She got asked simple, factual questions and, and responded with these monologues. She attacked her questioners. However, on the other hand, she was a powerful presence in that courtroom. She owned that courtroom. I mean, there was a moment when she even reminded the judge that she used to be his supervisor. She was telling the judge what to do. And 
I do not think that the defense lawyers landed a punch on her that will leave a mark. I think when it came to the financial part, it's this mishmash of she sort of reimbursed with cash a few times here and there, but they didn't drill down on specifics. There was not that moment where I said, aha, now they've got her. What about the moment, though, at the beginning where her former friend, mm -hmm. who I should note they haven't spoken in quite some time, right. said that actually they were romantic in 2019? That would directly contradict what both Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade have said. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be with you. I do think this is going to be unique because that if it's just going to come down to a question of credibility and who the judge believes. And so if you look at this witness who came in and she said, this is what happened. And they said, well, you've got a reason to lie. You were mad at the DA when you left. Well, okay. But the people who really seem to have the biggest reason to lie may be Mr. Wade and Miss Willis. And so the judge is going to have to weigh those things out. Um, but there are a lot of circumstantial things that I think support the friend. Uh, Wade and Willis admit that he was going to her house alone in 2021. That's, that's a little odd. I mean, is she claiming she was doing uh, strategy meetings on, over the indictment or something like that? That's, that's nonsense. That she's repaid him in cash, cash that can't be tracked. You know, there's no receipts, there's no nothing, but suddenly we're just paying in cash. Cash isn't accounted for on forms or in tax filings and that type of thing. So there are other things I think the judge will use to look at. I thought she was a terrible witness. I thought she looked like she was unhinged. And, you know, we say down south, the kick dog barks. And I thought there was a lot of barking coming from the stand. Her indignation might have seemed more genuine had she not let this simmer for about two months. Uh, and, and she should have just come out and owned it. But instead, she just let it go on I mean, and build and build. She literally ran to the court. She, she told us that, that she ran there right. after she noticed or she realized that Wade was wrapping up his testimony. And Sarah, I mean, you were inside that room. You not only know Fonnie Willis, you know the judge here, you know the defense attorney that we were just talking about there, Ashley Merchant. I mean, what was it like in that moment when Fonnie Willis comes in and says, no, no, to her team, you know, I know you're fighting the subpoena right now. I'm actually going to testify. Oh, my gosh. Caitlin, you couldn't make this up. I mean, Hollywood couldn't make this up any any better than it was today. Uh, it was silent. The courtroom, everybody, it was there was confusion. I think everybody was kind of confused on, is she really going to do this? And she certainly did. She came in that courtroom with one goal, and that was, I think, to stand up for herself. Um, I think you've heard over these past seven weeks the silence. We've all been wondering, what's, what is she going to say? How is she going to defend herself? And she sure did that today. Um, she made it clear that, you know, the allegations against her are not true. Um, and she really, yeah, I mean, it was less of a cross-examination than it was the DA just, you know, telling us um, in the court where she stands. Well, and I just thought it was remarkable, you know, her team was saying she shouldn't have to testify. And the fact that she chose to do that, as the judge said, you know, uh, okay, well, come on, we'll, we'll take a five-minute break and then we'll have, you, we'll have you up here. I think the question is, did she ultimately help or, or hurt her case? What, did you, what do you think? Well, I mean, it depends on who you ask and it depends on in which way. I think that she had to do some damage control because what has been said, the allegations in these motions are serious. Um, there are some implications ethically, of course, the disqualification of her office, even possible, I don't want to say criminally, um, but she had to get up there and defend herself. So in that way, I think she did that. Now, I don't know how far that goes. I still think tomorrow is going to be a full day of testimony. I think the defense is going to have to really wrap up and tie up the conflict, the purported conflict here um, without sort of fishing. I mean, we get it. They had dinner. They were in a relationship, but they've got to make this connection. And I think that Fonnie Willis's office has been pretty clear um, that there is no conflict of interest. And that's what her goal was today. And I think she did accomplish that. Well, and Ellie, on the conflict of interest allegations, I mean, 
the judge here had indicated a few days ago that, that maybe there was something here, that he actually wanted to hear these arguments today, but he kept redirecting everyone today. We're talking about the relationship and we're talking about the money. Right. On the money front, I mean, where does it go from here tomorrow if they weren't able to, while it was dramatic, prove that there is that conflict of interest? I, I think the defense lawyers have to do two things here. First of all, they have to establish a causal link here that because Fonnie Willis inserted Mr. Wade as the prosecutor. She profited substantially. And second of all, they need to get so much more specific. The cross-examinations of both Wade and Willis were severely lacking. They just sort of left it at this vague thing. I don't know, stacks of cash. Do you have receipts? Not really. When did you pay? I don't know. They need to drill down. How did you get this money? What documentation do you have? Where's your bank records? When was the first payment? How much? How, how did you document this? What was the balance? It's left in this murky sort of gray area, and that's not going to be enough for them to win. The other thing is, on the timing of the relationship, personally, I doubt that they started the relationship afterwards. Common sense is against that. Circumstantial factors are against that. But if you're the judge, you have to weigh the evidence here. And you have- But does it matter if they lied? Yes. Like, that's the because big That's the they, question, the way, right? It's not that the relationship actually right. had existed, but it's whether or not they lied. It's crucial to the narrative. And if they lied, Nathan Wade submitted a sworn affidavit that Fonnie Willis put in with the court. If that's a lie, that's a major problem. But the status quo right now is you have both participants saying didn't start till after. And again, the one witness, the friend, Ms. Yurdy, who said it started before was very vague. The examination was brief and unclear. She just said, I, I sort of knew and Fonnie Willis told me, but there was no specifics. And they said that she was, that she said she resigned from the DA's office. She said, they, the defense or the prosecutor's office said that actually she was on the verge of being fired, that yeah. she had been reprimanded. So I think that raises questions. But the bottom line here is we're sitting through this whole thing watching right. this today. All the co-defendants and their attorneys are in there, Trump's attorneys in there, we're not actually talking about the election interference case. Yeah. If the judge does decide to disqualify Fonnie Willis, it's not just her, it's the whole office. That's right. What does that mean for those co-defendants? You know, I, I think it just means delay. I think that it means this case is, is out years before it ever gets tried. If, if she's years? disqualified, it will be, especially if he happens to win the election. You know, they're not going to bring him back and bring a sitting president and try this case. We already know if, under their best case scenario, if they tried to start the trial now, we'd be well into next year before we could even finish the case. And so well after the election. And, and that's just not going to happen. I mean, let's just, we did just go ahead and, and say, I do think that the, the main thing that may catch them here would be the efforts to cover it up if they did, in fact, lie. But remember, they hold the keys to the truth of the case. I mean, they're fighting the subpoenas. They're fighting the, uh, having people come in. They don't want to waive any attorney-client privilege. They're, I mean, Ms. Mr. Wade and Ms. Willis sort of have the keys. They could let it all out and let the people see it. But at every turn, uh, it's not a it's not a uh, a goal of transparency. It's to again try to keep it out of the sight to come in and look like you're indignant that you're upset that you're going to call out uh, people for trying to put you on trial. Well, just show us the text. Show us the show us the records. Uh, I mean, Sarah, this case was investigated for so long. We were in Georgia when all these co-defendants were coming one by one to enter their not guilty pleas. I mean, what's your expectation? Is it going to be Fonnie Willis taking this to trial? Do you think? I do. I don't think that they're going to be able to make the connection. I think that the plan was to sort of smear her office and to get people talking to, you know, detract from what's at stake here. I don't know that they're going to be able to um, prove because it's it's got to be more than just a, a, a 
relationship. There's got to be an actual conflict of interest as it relates to this criminal indictment and to this specific case and these specific defendants. The law is pretty clear. I mean, there are cases where defense attorneys and prosecutors are in relationships and, and a conflict hasn't been found. So I just don't know that it's going to reach the standard such that she gets disqualified and her office gets disqualified. Yeah, and that's something that their office has brought up here, other potential relationships. I, I mean, it's remarkable. We will all be watching uh, tomorrow morning, of course, Ellie Honig, Michael Moore, Sarah Flack, all of you, thank you for being here. Up next for us here on CNN, the former Manhattan district attorney who once investigated Trump on where he sees this case going from here. Also, everything else that happened today because Trump's first criminal trial is now set. We got a date for that weeks after Super Tuesday. The question is, is he going to go on trial as the presumptive Republican presidential nominee? Also, you just can't make this up, but apparently this guy can because the former FBI informant who is championed by Republicans on Capitol Hill has now been arrested for lying about the Bidens and Ukraine. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis was fired up defending her conduct on the stand today. as She was also directly admonished at one point by the judge for the way that she was answering some of those questions. At one point, the defense attorney who was leading the charge to get Willis removed accused her of acting as a hostile witness. I'm not a hostile witness. I very much want to be. Not so much that you're hostile, Ms. Willis. It'd be an adverse witness. Your interests are opposed to Ms. Merchant's. Thank you. Ms. Merchant's interests are contrary to democracy, Your Honor, not to mine. I want to bring in Laura Coates, CNN anchor and chief legal analyst who was outside as all of that was happening today. And Laura, I mean, it was just so remarkable. And I just wonder, given your legal background, what you made of everything. What a day. I mean, can you imagine having Jack Smith, special counsel, prosecuting a former president of the United States and other co-defendants on the stand testifying about his sexual relationships or his romances or anything else. I mean, it was an extraordinary moment considering that they were trying to figure out if she ought to be disqualified from this prosecution. Now, if they disqualify her, it's not just her, Caitlin, it's her entire team, which means it would go to an outside agency to then choose or appoint new prosecutors who are not beholden to her or the indictments of, the, of before. They could even dismiss the case. But she came out of the game, just completely out of the gate, guns blazing, so to speak. Why? Because she went directly to the, the, the attorney who was trying to litigate this matter. She was indignant. 
She was also persuasive. They did not test her a great deal in terms of trying to undermine her testimony. But remember, what their responsibility was here was to prove a through line. Did she financially benefit from having hired Nathan Wade? They talked about dueling sources of income. They talked about different methods of payment. But did they make that through line? So far, no. And the one, it, the one witness who testified today, Caitlin, to talk about and conflict what they had said and contradict the story of the romantic relationship was somebody who appeared to be a disgruntled employee with an axe to grind, who was not later corroborated or rehabilitated on that point. It was an extraordinary day, and I think really tells you a lot about the stakes of this consequential moment. Yeah, it's everything that she's been working on. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just remarkable, Laura Coates. It was great to, to have you there to just see this in real time. I know you'll have much more on this on your show, Laura Coates Live. We will all be watching at 11 p.m. Eastern tonight. Thank Thanks, you. Caitlin. And I also want to get perspective on all of this from someone who has been in the shoes of a district attorney because he was one, the former Manhattan district attorney, Cy Vance Jr., who knows all too well the scrutiny that prosecutors face while they are investigating Donald Trump. And, and I'm so glad to have you here in person on, the, on this matter. But just to see her, part of her testimony, you know, was on the threats that she's faced. She talked about her father fearing for her safety. You know, we've read the book reports about how she had to wear a bulletproof vest. What did you make of, of hearing that from her in her testimony? Well, I think she's speaking from the heart. And I think to, to be in a position where you are threatened or your children are threatened, there's really no, there's nothing more fear-inducing than that. So I'm empathetic. Uh, and I think it's a terrible situation uh, for anyone to be in. And uh, I'd like to say that comes with a territory, but it's, you know, it's more than, you know, it, it's more than we should be having to deal with, she should be having to deal with. So... I, I thought I think that is a very personal experience and it probably scares her and makes her mad as hell. Well, and at one point, you know, I think one of the most searing moments was when she said, I'm not on trial. These people are on trial, pointing to the co-defendants, attorneys who were in the front row for, for trying to overturn the election, which just kind of reminded us that this whole thing was not even, you know, about the actual case at hand here. It was it was all focused on on her, really. Right. Well, I. I understand what she meant, but I don't think that necessarily plays well with the judge. I mean, she is a witness who the judge expected to come and testify, and, and like anybody else, um, she has to follow the, you know, follow the court rules, and, and she had a little tough time doing that. Have you ever seen a district attorney get on the stand like that? I mean, does that, can you remember any other instances? No, I, I've, I've, I was called as a witness once when I was a very young prosecutor, but I've never been called on the witness stand. Was it stand. televised on CNN? It was a very, 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 very small courtroom <laughs> uh, in Manhattan Criminal Court. Uh, no, it's it is extraordinary, and I uh, and I'm, I I'm empathetic, uh, uh, but uh, when you're dealing with Donald Trump um, in a case, uh, knowing who he is and how he litigates and uh, that he's looking for every angle in order to accomplish his objectives, uh, to get cases dismissed or to get delay. Um, this was, you know, this kind of goes into the category of an unforced error and uh, giving Trump the opportunity to do what he does best. Yeah, I mean, his, his team will sometimes find if you're 
cousin's wife's ex-girlfriend donated to a Democrat and they'll, they'll wield that against someone and say it's a political prosecution. The fact that they have this instance where you know, they're alleging something that's not politically motivated, but just saying that they were in a relationship and therefore that this shouldn't go forward. I mean, I think it would be quite remarkable to people who, who read that indictment and watched this play out to see Rudy Giuliani and all these others potentially have this, you know, turned into the hands of a district, different district attorney or a different prosecutor would be really remarkable. It would be remarkable. And uh, the but what I the, the times I was angriest when I was D.A. was when I or someone else I'm working with made unforced errors. And because you take the job on and you have to expect that you're going to be scrutinized uh, all the time, and especially in a case like this. this um, so uh, I, I do think, uh, as you were asking your, my former, your colleagues before, I think she testified heartfelt. She was fired up. She was angry. And I think that, uh, and I think that speaks to you know, her credibility. Uh, but this is making the case much more complicated, and, it's, and, and even if the, the motions don't succeed, this isn't going away. Uh, yeah. It's going to be part of the narrative from now to the time of trial. Well, you're also not going away because I have to get your thoughts in a moment on what else happened this morning at the other courthouse that I was outside this morning. So we'll we'll do that after a quick break, Mr. Vance, if you'll stick with us, because we've got a lot more to talk about. Also, on what happened today, though, in that courtroom in Georgia, there was a book that came up several times where Fonnie Willis had been interviewed. She's on the record and she's quoted. They zeroed in on one paragraph about her finances. We're going to ask the authors about that right after a quick break. As Fonnie Willis was testifying today, one particular book played a notable role in the case that Trump and his co-defendants attorneys were trying to make. We've been uh, bombarded with the book, Find Me the Votes. So you gave interviews to the authors of this book? I have not read this book. Can you show me where that is? Because this is where you put the tab. You you saw the book here, uh, Find Me the Votes. I'm a little wary of entering an entire 300-page book because I don't know exactly what every single line. The title of the book, of course, is A Hard-Charging Georgia Prosecutor, A Rogue President, and the Plot to Steal American Election. The full title of that book is Find Me the Votes, A Hard-Charging Georgia Prosecutor, A Rogue President, and the Plot to Steal an American Election. Of course, a reference to Donald Trump's request to the Georgia Secretary of State, a notorious one. The authors of that book, Michael Isakoff and Daniel Clydman, are here with me tonight. One, I I mean, I hope this was great for book sales, given this uh, was being aired on every single cable network, and they were showing the literal cover of your book. But, Michael, let me start with you, because what the attorneys were focusing on was one single paragraph about Fonnie Willis's finances in your book. I kind of wonder if when you heard this today, you were wondering if they're missing the point of the other 324 pages. Well, they actually missed the point of the paragraph that they were asking about uh, because there is a a passage in the book uh, in which we're talking about uh, and quoting Fonnie Willis about the financial troubles she was having after she ran for a judgeship in 2018 and lost. And she was talking about how she was drained. She was a single mother at that point. Uh, and she wasn't. Uh, she didn't have a lot of clients in her uh, in her law firm, and um, she was struggling. And she talked about that, and that that was a, that was a reason that she hesitated when about running for DA 
in 2020. But if they had read the next couple of paragraphs of the book, they would have understood that after her concerns about her financial troubles in 2018. Uh, she was appointed to a judgeship. Uh, she got a healthy salary from that. Her law practice improved and her finances were fairly uh, much better at the time. So, you know, if they had read the book a little more closely, which I hope your viewers will do, um, they'll see that they really kind of mischaracterized uh, what we were saying there. Yeah, Daniel, I imagine that you didn't, when you were writing this book and y'all were reporting this out, that you probably didn't think this this paragraph would be such a central focus of this hearing, but it, it's because the money matters here, and that's that's key to the allegations that they are making against the district attorney. I mean, I wonder what stood out to you as you were listening to that today and how they were talking about your book. It, it, well, I was in the courtroom, and it was a little bit of an out-of-body experience uh, hearing them uh, mention the book title, um, you know, talk about entering it into evidence and, and all these lawyers scrutinizing our words. But yeah, the point that they were trying to make uh, was that this was evidence uh, that Fonnie Willis um, was, uh, you know, hired Nathan Wade and, 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 and took on this Trump case uh, because they saw an opportunity to enrich themselves. Uh, and she needed it because she was destitute, uh, a, 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 according to uh, their interpretation of our book. But as Mike just said, they distorted uh, our account. Uh, and the reality w is that she was actually doing quite well then. Her concern was running another race, pouring in some of her own money and ending up uh, in that position, you know, once again. And, and so... Um, you know, it, it, it uh, I'm, look, I'm not surprised. Lawyers uh, take whatever um, uh, evidence they have, facts they have, they throw them against the wall and see what sticks. Uh, but she actually, when she testified, she sort of corrected the record and her account was very consistent with what we wrote in the book. Yeah, but Michael, what I couldn't get over is, as someone who has, has seen your book and knew what it was about, is that these are the co-defendants, attorneys, for the people who were indicted for trying to overturn the election in the state of Georgia, which is what your entire book is focused on, that effort and just the lengths that they went to. And they're citing your book, but trying to prove a different point. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the really surreal uh, aspect of this is that we spent all day delving into the personal sex lives of the DA and her um, uh, and, and the special prosecutor she hired. Um, you know, they didn't really get all that much to advance their case. They had the one witness uh, who contradicted them, but she was vague. She didn't have any specifics. She had been fired by Fonnie Willis. So there was that. But you know, all of which is a huge distraction from what the case is all about and what our book is all about, which was a rather elaborate conspiracy uh, to overthrow the results of an election. And, you know, all the serious matters we talk about in the book and which are part of the case, the pressure on state officials, the blatantly false testimony by Rudy Giuliani at a, at a Georgia legislature that led to all the threats against election workers like uh, Ruby Freeman, the fake electors, the cyber heist raid in, in, in Coffee County, rural Georgia, you know, all of that is almost forgotten. And instead, we're talking about something that really has no but Kate, bearing on the yeah. evidence at all. And, and Caitlin, that's that's what precisely what underscores why this is so problematic for Fonnie Willis, because mm -hmm. uh, because the last thing she wants uh, is for uh people and, you know, potential jurors out there um, and the public uh, not to be focused on 
um, the really serious uh, matters underlying this case. And, it, and the problem is for a, you know, a, a district attorney who's bringing such a serious uh, set of charges to, to herself become a witness um, in, in a spectacle like this, and, and at least for a short period here, uh, lose, uh, lose the moral high ground. Now, I, I think, um, you know, this, this could, if, if she is not disqualified, um, if, if the case um, uh, yeah. continues, you know, it'll be part of the narrative, but I think she could get back on track here and bet, get the focus back on the underlying issues, which is, you know, the threat to democracy by, by an attempt, serious attempt to sub subvert an election. Maybe that will be book number two. Daniel Kleidman, <laughs> Michael Isakoff, this is well-timed. Thank you both. Of course, that is a, a notable book in this moment. Up next, the other massive headline from today that somehow has been overshadowed in part because of what happened in Georgia. Donald Trump is going to stand trial next month in the New York hush money case. There are historic implications. We'll talk about them in a moment. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. With all the drama happening in Georgia, you may have missed the other earthquake in another courtroom that happened here in New York today. That is where a judge decided that the former president of the United States will face a criminal trial, his first criminal trial, on March 25th next month. The potential for fireworks at that case, the Trump hush money trial, could make what happened in Georgia today look tame. It is going to be Donald Trump, Stormy Daniels, Michael Cohen, all in the same courtroom. Of course, this is because... Then-candidate Trump is accused of using Michael Cohen to pay off Stormy Daniels just weeks before the 2016 election to keep quiet about an alleged affair. Prosecutors charged Trump with 34 counts of falsifying business records, alleging that he hid the payout to benefit his political campaign. Trump was actually in that courtroom today to witness his attorneys get repeatedly shut down as they tried to get the trial delayed. He did not seem thrilled afterward. Welcomes out of Washington. They're coordinated with the district attorney and the AG. It's election interference by Biden because it's the only way he can think to get elected. I shouldn't be in a courthouse for something that virtually every legal scholar says they don't understand it. There's no crime. Even if he was guilty of something, there's no crime. That's an interesting legal theory. I should note none of this is President Biden's doing. Trump is making that up. But to bring back in here with us tonight, former CNN or former prosecutor and CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig and also Cy Vance Jr., who served as the Manhattan district attorney before Alvin Bragg did. And investigating Trump in this matter actually began on your watch. And so it's great to have you here. I mean, I just wonder what you make of the fact that 
we're at this point that a trial has now been scheduled uh, for next week. I mean, next month. Well, it's extraordinary. Uh, it's extraordinary. And I think it's extraordinary that it's in a state office uh, as opposed to a federal courtroom. And uh, but it's really no surprise for Manhattan. I mean, I think uh, that office has had significant cases. This is extraordinary. But uh, the crazy atmosphere has been we've been there before. Uh, but the but the cases are the cases. I think both sides have arguments in this case. I think uh, Prosecutor Bragg has some hard facts and hard evidence, and he's got some issues that he's going to have to deal with, including Michael Cohen. On the other hand, Michael Cohen uh, is Trump's hire, and uh, the documents are the documents. Uh, Interesting, Trump's argument also will be that I'm a victim here. Uh, This was extortion, uh, and I was dealing with extortion. may not be the way that you like, but uh, that'll be an argument. And there there, there are also some legal theories around whether uh, the false business record statute, which is a misdemeanor in New York, whether the crimes that are being, whether those false records were in furtherance of a state crime or a federal crime. And there isn't a lot of settled law on that. And uh, normally we do the fact checking. We don't ask our guests to do it. But can you I mean, he's claiming it was the Biden DOJ. This has been uh, under this kind of investigation had been under in the works for long before that. Well, the investigation started uh, when I was D.A. and uh, and when I left when Trump was president, when Trump was and we indicted. And in charge of the DOJ. And we indicted uh, the Trump organization and has been convicted of tax fraud. So. You know, there's a long history to this case before we arrived to the current indictment. And uh, uh, and the, so the shock of uh, of the Trump family or orbit being indicted, that happened in 2020. Uh, this is just another chapter in a long story. Let me, let me if I can add to that, the Justice Department under Joe Biden, the Southern District of New York, my former office, declined to prosecute this case. Uh, I mean, I reported on this in my book. It's been confirmed since. There were internal conversations. Sai, you may have been part of early an early iteration of that. But when Trump leaves office in January of 2021, there are a series of internal meetings between DOJ bosses and SDNY folks who had prosecuted Michael Cohen. And the ultimate decision that that DOJ made is it's not worth it. Now, that raises another question, though. What is Alvin Bragg, your successor, and I should say a former colleague of mine, what is he doing? What is he seeing that the Southern District isn't seeing? And the key to me is Michael Cohen. He's going to be such an interesting, there's going to be a moment where Michael Cohen takes a stand in a criminal trial against Donald Trump. I'm I'm interested what you think of his credibility. I mean, Michael likes to claim, I know Michael, I I consider him a friend, um, but we know his history. And Michael likes to claim that the only things he ever lied about had to do with Donald Trump. That's not really true, though. He was convicted of personal tax fraud. He now claims he lied when he pled guilty to personal tax fraud. I see him as a problematic witness. Well, he's more than a problematic witness. He could be a, you know, exploding hand grenade uh, for the DA's office. There's a lot to work with if you're cross if you're cross examining Michael Cohen, uh, a lot. Uh, and there are conflicting stories about the same story. And so, uh, but I think as former prosecutors, we also understand that uh, it's your job when you have a very difficult witness to make sure that the jury understands who he is. Uh, They have, it's been preset. They know this is going to be a guy with a bad past. You've got to inoculate the jury. And then I think if he's honest about all his failings, he's more believable. Can I say one thing that stood out to me today being in front of the court was the judge 
you know, Trump's strategy on every trial is delay, delay, delay. This judge was like literally cutting off Trump's attorney saying, stop interrupting me, because he saw through that. He saw that that's what they were trying to do. And they said, no, it's happening March 25th. Yeah. It, today, that calendar entry went from pencil to pen. I mean, that's been on the calendar for a long time. But the, the, the supposition for months now has been, well, it's going to conflict with Jack Smith's calendar. And Alvin Bragg has signaled and the judge has signaled we're going to give way. Now, Jack Smith's case gets delayed. And as a result, that case is standing all on its own. And the one and only thing I was listening for today, when you reported, Caitlin, well, the date's on. I said, there it is. That's the story And it of only the day. took like 20 minutes. I, right. It was, it happened, we were shocked it happened so quickly. That's the story of the day. This is going to happen. I mean, I'm, having, I'm trying to get my mind around it. It, it was surreal, as I said, yeah. when we saw an indictment of Donald Trump. And, and we're 39 days, I counted, away from a trial. This judge uh, is a veteran on Donald Trump. So when we were investigating and dealing with the grand jury and gathering evidence and then all the way to the Supreme Court twice... This judge knows the M.O., and Judge Bershon is a very even-tempered, very thoughtful, very smart judge. Hmm. But he is, uh, I think what you're seeing today is he's going to control the courtroom. When Donald Trump steps outside the courtroom and talks to the press, <laughs> that's going to be another matter. But Yeah, and I should note he was much more muted in the courtroom today as well. Sorry, Jr., always great to have you. Ellie Honig, of course, you're a regular here. <laughs> Ahead, though, another interesting story as the former FBI informant who was central to Republican efforts to impeach President Biden was just indicted for making up stuff about President Biden. Chairman James Comer, you might want to call your office. Today, the individual behind the allegations at the center of Republicans' impeachment inquiry into President Biden an investigation that is being led by Comer, he's the chair of the House Oversight Committee, was arrested and charged with making it all up. Alexander Smirnov is a former FBI informant now accused of lying to the FBI and creating false records tied to claims that he made about President Biden and his son Hunter's dealings with the Ukrainian energy company Burisma. For almost a year now, House Republicans have championed these now totally discredited claims from this informant without naming him. Even a trusted FBI informant has alleged a bribe to the Biden family. We already know the president took bribes from Burisma. Today's indictment alleges that the so-called trusted informant's evidence was actually a fabrication. Here tonight, former White House Communications Director Kate Bedingfield and former Senior Advisor to Mitch McConnell, Scott Jennings. Scott, I mean, Republicans have been using this for months, and they've been citing this informant. Senator Chuck Grassley was doing it. Chairman Comer was doing it. Mm. Now they're putting out statements tonight saying that their whole thing wasn't revolved around this. But, but there was a lot of pressure on the FBI from conservatives who basically said they weren't doing their job because of this informant. Yeah, if you talk to them tonight, they'll tell you this isn't really uh, all there is to this impeachment inquiry. They're still investigating all the other payments from all the other countries that came into all the other LLCs and all the other members of the Biden family. So they're full speed ahead. I actually did talk to Jamie Comer earlier, fellow Kentuckian. Today? Yeah. Since this came out? Yep. And what did he and say? He told me that his goals here have always been to uh, hold people accountable and make criminal referrals if necessary and ultimately to... Uh, perhaps even pass a law regarding influence peddling as it relates to the kinds of things that have been uncovered. He's not sure whether the House is going to do an impeachment or not. He's never has been quite sure whether they're going to go through with it, but he's just trying to find the facts and some accountability. 
Well, that's quite a shifting of the goalposts from where he's been since, since the beginning of this process, where they've said many times that they aim to impeach President Biden. They've spent months and months and months trying to pull together a case. They've had their very own witnesses. They've had Republican witnesses who have essentially undermined uh, the thrust of the case they were making, even before you get to their kind of star informant uh, now actually going to jail for lying about uh, what was at the center of their case. So, you know, I, I think it's a little it, it's it's this is a moment where Republicans are looking at uh, how badly they fumbled the ball here. And they're saying, well, actually, our intention was never to get into the end zone. That's crazy. That's not quite that's that's not quite true. Uh, and I think what we've seen time and again is that this is blown back politically on Republicans. We've seen this has been a concerted effort uh, for, as I say, many months, I mean, years, really, uh, to try to make this stick to Joe Biden, to try to make this kind of the center of their case against Joe Biden. It hasn't worked. We see now uh, again on the substance that's uh, because there's no there there. This, this, but this is not the only thing they're looking into. A lot of other money has changed hands here so, uh, from a lot of, of other sources. I, and so to, to wash that all away over one dude who, by the way, was apparently quite a trusted person from the FBI who they paid lots of money to over the years. I mean, to pin that on Republicans, guy, I'm not sure is fair. And some of the most sensational claims that we hear about the $5 million payment, that's all from this person who's now got arrested in Las Vegas today when he touched down. Yeah, it's not good. I mean, uh, when, you're, uh, when, when your guy gets arrested like that. But it also doesn't wipe away everything else they have been looking into, which is far more than just this piece, you would have to admit. Lots more has come out. And look, I, I don't know whether they're actually going to get to an impeachment or not, but a lot of information has come out here about money that changed hands that has nothing to do with this person. Well, except that it continues to be, they continue to make those allegations and they continue to be undermined. I mean, they've tried time and again to make this argument about this payment from China, which they had, again, throughout the course of this process, they've had their own witnesses come out and say, well, no, it actually, you know, the money actually didn't go from here to there. And they've never been able to make a cohesive case here as they've desperately tried and tried to put it together. So, you know, I, I, again, I think this is, we saw, they saw this through throughout 2019 and 2020. They tried to make, Republicans tried to make this uh, an aggressive political case against Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and the Biden family. It didn't work. And at every turn, the substance of what they've tried to put forward falls apart, which you saw in spectacular well, fashion today. And Jamie Raskin is saying that they should call off the inquiry now. Not <laughs> totally sure that'll happen. Kate Betting, both, <laughs> no, Scott Jennings. Great to have you both. Uh, tonight, also, we have to update you on an important story from last night, the one we started with, that deadly shooting that happened at the Super Bowl celebration in Kansas City. The people in custody, what we are learning, all as a vigil was held tonight for the victim. Tonight in Kansas City, a vigil was held for the victims of yesterday's mass shooting at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade. More than 20 people were hurt, including a lot of young children, some of them as young as eight years old. A mother and a local radio DJ, Lisa Lopez Galvan, was killed in that shooting. Investigators say tonight that the shooting stemmed from what they believe was a dispute, that there's no indication what happened was motivated by terrorism or extremism. Right now, police say two teens are in custody. A third person was let go today. And right now, prosecutors have until tomorrow to file charges. We will obviously be paying close attention to what they do here. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. CNN News Night with Abby Phillip starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.